910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome, everyone. We are in the home stretch of our 12-week series on the book of Revelation. We've spent 10 weeks so far looking first at Jesus' letters to the seven churches, which we saw also represent the universal church for all time, and then we've seen God's judgment on evil and the wicked. Throughout the book, John's revealed some hard and disturbing images and events that some have already occurred, some continue to occur, and some that are still yet to occur. But thankfully, all through these events and images, God has woven in encouragement and hope for his people. And as we tackle the last four chapters of Revelation, two today and two in the next episode, we're going to see that more than ever. Who doesn't love a happy ending in a book? It's always easy to write fiction that ends on an up note, but sadly for many, their nonfiction stories have not ended so happily. But for anyone who belongs to Christ, whatever your earthly story has been or is, it's not the end. The Lord God Almighty has himself written the end of your story, and it's about as happy as it gets. Let's start digging into Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19 verses 1 through 4 says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Chris, let's start with the first two words of the passage you just read. After this, what is this scene taking place after? Well, here's the umpteenth reminder that Revelation is not a chronological series of events. And if you need even more proof than what we've already been showing, chapter 16 was the Battle of Armageddon, the final battle where Jesus completely destroys all evil. But then we saw in the last episode in chapter 17 and 18, God dealing with the beast and Babylon. So as has been the pattern First, we got the big picture view of the final battle in 16, then beginning in chapter 17 and continuing through chapter 20, we get a zoomed in look at what takes place during that battle. Chapter 18 ends with Babylon being thrown down in violence and destroyed. And as we've often seen, there's rejoicing when God's judgment is passed on the wicked. The multitude in heaven that's crying out hallelujah and praising God for his perfect justice are the people of God. There's a possibility that they are specifically the martyrs since they've cried out to God to avenge their blood and it says that he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. But it could also very well be all the people of God. We know that all the people of God are there who fall down and worship God as represented by the 24 elders. And then chapter 19 goes on with another beautiful passage that continues the glimpse into heaven. 
Revelation 19, 6-10 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Chapter 18 was all about the fall of the counterfeit bride, Babylon. You might remember she was clothed in scarlet, adorned with the jewels of the world, and drunk on the blood of the martyrs. She was the personification of the world specifically the evil that can come from power, lust, riches, fame, and things like that. But now, here in chapter 19, we see the contrast of Babylon with the true bride, the church, God's people. We touched on this in the last episode, but it's worth noting again the differences in the two. While the counterfeit bride was striding the waters of the earth, the true bride is falling down before God. And while the fake bride is drunk on the blood of martyrs, meaning she was heady with and reveling in her power and glorifying herself for destroying the people of God, the true bride is rejoicing in the holiness and justness of God and worshiping him and giving him all glory. And as we mentioned before, Babylon was clothed in scarlet and purples, whereas the true bride is in pure white. You know, Chris, this always makes me think of a scene from Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Rhett Butler yes. thought Scarlett had cheated on him and they were going to a party at the house of the guy he thought she was cheating with. And he made her wear a red gown because it said it made her look the part of a harlot. Now, before we get emails, I'm not saying red's a bad color to wear. I wear it all the time. But compare... It doesn't mean you're a harlot. <laughs> no, not at all. But compare it to white. The color white is a symbol of purity. Think of brides and angels. So the contrast here is evident. And the biggest contrast is that while Babylon was thrown down in violence and destroyed, the true bride of Christ is at her marriage banquet. We should mention something in the verses that we read. Verse 9 is another of those seven Beatitudes that are contained in the book of Revelation. We haven't had the time to touch on all of them, but this one, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Beatitudes throughout the Bible are all pictures of the kingdom of God. For example... The ones found in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, are all pictures of what kingdom life should look like. And here, in Revelation 19, seeing kingdom life being lived out. For those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, they will celebrate that citizenship, which is depicted as the true bride being given in marriage to the bridegroom Jesus and attending a wedding feast. You know, I've been to some pretty spectacular weddings. Besides my own, my husband and I have married off three of our kids, and their weddings were pretty awesome. Yeah, we were at a few. That's right, you were. Your son's getting married this spring, and I'm sure the wedding is going to be fabulous. But none of those weddings, or any other wedding on earth, will compare to this wedding. I can't even imagine how amazing this is going to be. And we get to wear a white gown again. Okay, it might be more like a robe, but you know what I mean. 
<laughs> I always picture a choir robe, but oh, maybe. who knows? It's white. I like to wear white. <laughs> so it will be amazing, though. So, Rose, we better move on here because we have a lot to cover. The rider on the white horse is what we're going to talk about next. Revelation 19, 11 to 16 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a new name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we're all going to be at this amazing wedding feast where Jesus claims his bride, the church. And since he's the perfect husband, of course, he does what you would expect the perfect husband to do. He sets out to avenge the mistreatment of his bride. Again, his names, faithful and true. That denotes just how perfect the bridegroom he is. And unlike human bridegrooms, he judges and makes war in righteousness, meaning that he judges and releases his wrath on those who justly deserve it. And as we've said this before, but it's certainly worth repeating, we deserve that wrath and judgment too, but it's because Jesus has already taken it for us that we don't have to endure it. Exactly. And there aren't a lot of physical descriptions of Jesus in the Bible. In fact, there really isn't any that tell what he looked like while he walked the earth, other than he looked pretty ordinary, as we see in Isaiah 53. But here, we get what seems like a bit of a look at Jesus' physical appearance. It says his eyes are like a flame of fire, he has many diadems or crowns on his head. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name Word of God. He is leading an army that's lined up behind him, all dressed in white and riding white horses. This is a pretty magnificent picture. I can't even imagine it. And Rose, what does it mean that he's wearing a bunch of crowns? Well, <clears throat> we're going to see that this isn't exactly a physical picture of Jesus. It's a lot of symbolism. But you know... If your entire army has gone off to war dressed in all white, you got to be pretty confident about the win. <laughs> Absolutely. No Clorox needed in heaven. That's right. And there's some irony here. The way Jesus comes in Revelation 19 is the way the Jewish people had expected him to come the first time. They wanted a great military leader who would avenge them. But of course, Jesus didn't come anything like that the first time. Yeah, he is forever turning the worldview of things upside down. And Jesus should be confident about the outcome of this war he's about to fight. It's the Battle of Armageddon that we saw in chapter 16. And that battle, which really wasn't much of a battle, which I think we said back then, ended just by Jesus saying, it is done. So now we're seeing events that took place during that battle. Again, it's not really a battle at all. Rose, you said this passage isn't exactly a physical description of Jesus. So let's take a minute to decode what that means, that his eyes are like a flame and he has many diadems on his head. Okay, first, Jesus isn't wearing a bunch of crowns. He's not trying to balance a bunch of crowns <laughs> on his head, although he could. He could. <laughs> this symbol could mean one of two things, and maybe it means both. 
First, he is the king of kings and lord of lords, as verse 16 says, is written on his thigh. So the many crowns symbolize that he is the true king who has complete authority over every other leader who has ever lived or ever will live. The other possibility is that the crowns denote that Jesus is the perfect fulfiller of the three major offices of God's people that are listed in the Bible. And those offices are king, priest, and prophet. Yeah, throughout the Old Testament, God appointed men to these offices. Obviously, they were imperfect men who didn't execute the offices the way that was meant to be executed. And the purpose, as with everything else in the Old Testament, was to point to Jesus. One day, there would be a Messiah and Savior who would fulfill those offices perfectly. And, as we see in the book of Hebrews in chapters 1 through 3, Jesus has done just that. He has perfected and permanently taken over all three offices of king, priest, and prophet. He has. And obviously, Jesus' eyes weren't on fire. The flame in his eyes is a reference back to Revelation 1.14, where John said his eyes were like the flames of fire. And when Jesus describes himself in Revelation 2.18 as having eyes like flames of fire. This just symbolizes Jesus' holiness, power, and omniscience, meaning he sees all and he knows all. Okay, let's finish up chapter 19. Revelation 19, 17 to 21 says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So here we see proof that it wasn't much of a battle. And I'm pretty sure that army with Jesus didn't even get grass stains on their white robes. (laughs) Exactly. And we see another huge contrast between this great supper of God listed here and the marriage banquet believers will be attending. While we're feasting on the best food we'll ever have, the evil are getting feasted on by birds. And Chris, we're not talking like sparrows and robins. These are probably turkey vultures, crows, vultures, you know, the kind of ones we see eating dead animals on the side of the road. Yuck. Yuck is right. But you're right. It's not much of a battle. Jesus was described earlier in the verse in 1915 as having a sharp sword coming from his mouth with which he'll strike down the nations. So has Jesus's tongue become a sword? Of course not. We see the symbolism here. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Jesus is the manifestation of the word of God. Jesus will destroy the beast, the false prophet, and all the wicked merely by speaking it. We saw this in chapter 16 when it said that the battle of Armageddon ended when Jesus said, It's done. Now we see how it all went down. 
Without any resistance at all, the beast and the false prophet were captured and thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Then he spoke an earthquake into occurrence and had hundred-pound hailstones fall on the people. Then he tells the birds, feast on their flesh. Pretty yucky. Yeah, but pretty awesome. But also pretty awesome. (laughs) Pretty awesome that Jesus can destroy everything evil in the world without breaking a sweat. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to chapter 20. And we have to be careful and do our due diligence with this. Otherwise, this chapter is going to trip us up. So let's dive in. We'll start with... Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. These verses on the thousand years or millennium are the most debated and thought to be the most difficult passage in the entire book of Revelation. Yeah, and scholars are split whether this is still a yet-to-come future event that it will happen right before Jesus' second coming or if it's happening right now. In fact, there are three different thoughts that are named for how these thousand years are viewed. Post-millennials hold to the notion that Jesus comes back after this thousand-year period occurs. Most in this camp do not think the thousand years is literal, but some do. So at some point in the future, Jesus will bind Satan for a thousand years, during which time Christians are to establish God's kingdom on earth. For instance, we'll have a Christianized world. After a period of time of this, symbolized by the thousand, Jesus will return let Satan out, and the final battle will occur. Then there's the premillennialists. They believe that all we've read so far in Revelation will happen, and then Jesus will come back and physically reign on the earth for a thousand years. Most all in this camp believe that the 1,000 years is 1,000 literal years that Jesus reigns on earth with his people. They believe that during these thousand years, the earth's going to be a great place. It won't be heaven on earth yet, but it's going to be pretty awesome because it will be Christianized with Jesus reigning, much like the post-millennialists. But we have no scriptural evidence of the earth ever being Christianized. So for pre-millennialists and post-millennialists, there's a problem. What about sin during this period? If Jesus is reigning, are Christians with him going to sin? It's not heaven yet, so we're not sinless. So that's a problem. And we don't have time to go any deeper with this because we want to get to the third position, which, Chris, you and I fall into, and that's amillennialists. Amillennials believe that the thousand years of Christ's reign is symbolic, like most of the other numbers in Revelation. We believe that it represents the whole period between Jesus' first and second coming. It's now. So, Chris, let's give scriptural proof for this view because who really cares if that's what we think? Exactly. So I will give some proof. First, as we said, this period of reign is symbolic of the time between Jesus' first and second coming. And beside the fact that we're already over a thousand years since Jesus ascended, whenever the number 1,000 has been used in Revelation, it's been symbolic. I love what Dr. Bauckham says about this. The 1,000 is 10 to the third power. 10 is the number of completeness, and 3 is the number of completeness with a reference to the Trinity. So 
1,000 or 10 to the third power is a godly complete reign. Love that. Me too. So how do we know Christ's reign is happening now and not sometime in the future? Well, the kingdom of God is mentioned 126 times in the Gospels and a total of 160 times throughout the New Testament. Most of the references come directly from Jesus. The word kingdom in the original Greek means rule or reign. Jesus said in Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus is telling us he is the kingdom or the reign of God. So Jesus' first coming was ushering in the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus is both the manifestation of that reign of God and the king of that reign. Certainly sounds like he's reigning. It certainly does. And thank God for that. And Satan is definitely being restrained by God right now. He is certainly not as bad as he could be. And we saw how bad he can be without Jesus' restraining hand when we looked at what he does to unbelievers when God lets him loose for a while. But this restraint of Satan here in Revelation 20 is a very specific restraint. This binding of Satan has to do with not being able to deceive the nations, not with the other evil he does. Satan is at work making war on believers for sure. And it doesn't say here that he's being bound from doing that. What the text does say is that he's being bound from deceiving the nations. If you remember, nations was part of the believers on earth, peoples, multitudes, nations, languages. What Revelation is saying is that Jesus is limiting Satan's power to veil the gospel from believers. 2 Corinthians 4.4 affirms this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Yeah, and the gospel is spreading and flourishing because God's not allowing Satan to blind the minds of believers. Satan won't be able to blind the minds of believers from the gospel because the Holy Spirit regenerates the hearts of God's people, testifying to the truth of the gospel. So as a result, the gospel has been spreading and flourishing in all nations since Jesus' ascension and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So we see how Jesus is keeping Satan's power to deceive the nations at bay, which is symbolically listed here as keeping him chained in a pit. But then the text says Jesus will release him for a short time. Chris, why don't you try to explain this as simply as possible? Well, we said this book is not in chronological order. These verses in 20 verses 1 to 3 actually happen at the beginning of the thousand years, which we said is at Jesus' ascension. It's at the end of the thousand years, right before Jesus' second coming, that Satan and his demons will be released for a short time. Remember Revelation 9, 1 through 11? I'll read just a bit from it. An angel was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were allowed to torment for five months. We just read in chapter 20, verse 1, that an angel was given the key to lock Satan in the pit. That's a direct correlation to chapter 9, verse 1, where the angel has the key to open the pit and let Satan out. It's also a reference to Revelation 1, verse 18, where Jesus said, I hold the key to death and Hades. 
Right now, Satan is being restrained from blinding believers to the gospel. But Jesus is also holding him back from doing his worst to unbelievers. Think back to the locusts coming out of the pit in Revelation 9 after the fifth trumpet. They symbolize Satan and his demons. And at that point, God gave unbelievers over to Satan and his demons. But it was only for a short time. It was until God says, enough is enough. We looked at all of that when we went through chapter 9. And it's during this period, right before this, like we saw with the fifth trumpet, with Satan and his demons being released, that God gives unbelievers over to Satan and lets Satan do his worst. Chris, you want to read Revelation 24 to 6? Sure. Revelation 24 through 6 says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So guess what? What? Revelation is not chronological. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> this, the verses you just read are a picture. They're a recapitulation of the picture we saw in chapters 6 and chapters 12. In chapter 6, the martyrs are gathered around the throne room saying, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then we saw another perspective in chapter 12 that showed why there are martyrs. There's martyrs because according to 12:17, the dragon, furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So now here in chapter 20, we get yet another perspective. So this is a picture of what's happening with the martyrs right now. And not to keep going back, but we want you to see how this whole book ties together beautifully. We said that there were more Christians martyred in the 20th century than in all previous 19th centuries combined, which is a sign of things getting more intense. Yet these martyrs have not taken the mark of the beast. They have not forsaken their love for God. Remember, we talked about all have been made heirs to the kingdom, joint heirs with Christ, as we see in Romans 8, 17, which says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So right now, those who belong to Jesus who have died are co-heirs and they're reigning with Christ from heaven. And we have a lot more to cover and we are running short of time. So let's keep going. Let's talk about the first and second resurrection. This is something that trips a lot of people up. But the key is to really reading the text. So I'm going to repeat verses 4 to 6 in chapter 20 that you just read. It says also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its marks on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. 
Chris, let's see if we can lay this out simply. Okay. Now that we know the thousand-year reign of Christ is happening now, and believers who have already died are reigning with him, it makes things a little bit easier. All believers who have died are reigning with Christ in John's vision. But those who will still be alive at the time of Jesus' second coming are the ones who are still to be raised. The first and second resurrection coincide with the first and second births that scripture talks about. If you'll recall, our first birth is our physical birth and our second birth is our spiritual birth. Everyone is physically born of their mother and they're born spiritually dead in their sins because of their inborn sin nature. The only way to be made spiritually alive is to be quote-unquote resurrected or in other words brought back to life. That only happens when the Holy Spirit regenerates our dead hearts. Jesus referred to that generation of the heart as being born again. Here, that's referred to as the believer's first resurrection. And this makes perfect sense as to why, first, believers need not fear the second resurrection, which we're going to get to in a minute, and why the first resurrection has no impact on unbelievers. Unbelievers don't know they're spiritually dead, so they go through life not caring that we as believers have been spiritually resurrected or reborn. The second resurrection is when we physically die. Remember, everyone who physically dies will be raised to life for all eternity. They're going to be resurrected. For believers, we don't have to fear this at all. In fact, we should be longing for it. Our second resurrection is when we join Christ and reign with him in heaven. For unbelievers, though, this resurrection, which is actually their first, means that they'll be resurrected from the dead only to be condemned to hell forever. This is exactly why John says the second death has no power over those who belong to Christ. Jesus has already won the victory over death for us. And let's talk about the defeat of Satan, which occurs in verses 7 to 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We don't have time to really dig into this, unfortunately. But again, this is just a zoom into what happens at Armageddon. We already said that Satan will be released to have his way with unbelievers for a short time. And then we see a picture of him and his minions lining up to march on the saints. And again, it's not much of a battle. No, and we don't have time to delve in really, but this isn't the first time that we see Gog and Magog. They're mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. They represent evil kingdoms who join forces with Satan. And as you can see, they definitely picked the wrong side. <laughs> they definitely did. Yeah. Okay, let's wrap up Revelation 20 11, by reading 11 to 14. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a picture that simultaneously shows the picture of judgment of God that every unbeliever will have to face when they physically die, as well as the final judgment at the very end before Jesus establishes a new heaven and a new earth. Everyone, absolutely everyone, will face God when they physically die, the second death. If your name is in the book of life, meaning that you've been chosen by the Father, saved by the Son, and sealed with the Holy Spirit, you've got nothing to fear. But for those who haven't and whose names are not in the book, they are thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. And the end of this passage shows that once Satan and all evil are destroyed, death is destroyed because everyone will be immortal and hell is sealed up, the destruction of Hades. Everyone left at this point is going to be alive forever with Jesus. Amen to that. And this is a good place to end today. Join us in the next episode for the last installment in this series. And don't forget to keep listening throughout the new year because we have some really great shows and some big surprises for you in store. Wishing you all a blessed day and a blessed new year.